Before I get going this morning, guys, you, you might want to pay attention to my volume a little bit today. My voice is a little bit weaker and froggier than it usually is. I feel fine, so don't be scared. But my voice is just not as strong as it usually is today. So um, if, if I can get up here and speak, in spite of my voice being the way that, that it is right now, you can be gracious to me and listen through it, right? Okay, praise God. Hallelujah. Let's pray before we go to the Word today. Father, thank you so much for this time together and what this season means, especially to us who believe in you. And as we open up your Word, Lord, I pray that it would come alive to us. I pray that we would see it in a new light, that we would see things from a new angle and And a new revelation would come to us today as a result of opening your word and hearing a message that we think that we've heard many times before and we think that we know the Christmas story. But Lord, every time we pass over a passage of scripture that we've seen before, there's always potential for it to speak to us anew because your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a living thing, Lord, your word says. And so we just trust you today that you're going to speak to us afresh and anew, even though this is a message that many of us are very familiar with, Lord. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to us at a very personal level. And if nothing else, Lord, teach us how to articulate your gospel in a new way that resonates with those who that we might speak with and it would resonate with those people and that we would become more effective evangelists as a result of what we hear today. And for these things, we thank you, Lord. Amen. On that note, by the way, since um, my voice hasn't been today like it uh, usually is, I want to thank Matt for helping me out today and doing an excellent job on vocals this morning. So thank you, Matt. You just got yourself on the hook for more work, buddy. (laughs) do a job well and you'll be asked to to do it again (laughs) hallelujah praise God well let's turn to our master text today in the book of Isaiah and Isaiah is kind of in the middle of your Bible we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 7 and also a passage in Isaiah chapter 9 so we're actually going to be reading only a couple of verses this morning Um, but in two different chapters. So when you get to Isaiah chapter 7, would you stand up with me and let's honor the reading of God's holy word? In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the prophet Isaiah, prophesying about the future, says here, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with a child. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. Now, let's skip over to verse uh, 6 in chapter 9, which says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace. And all God's people say, 
Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, if you will. Praise the Lord. Well, I just want to introduce the concept of this teaching this morning, that uh, the origin of the celebration of Christmas, of course, is Jesus Christ, right? I mean, Christmas is made of the name Christ, after all. But with everything that honors God, ladies and gentlemen, Satan will try to create a counterfeit. And he's done that very effectively with our modern celebration of Christmas as if it's all about material possessions instead of the greatest gift that's ever been given to mankind, the gift of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, I don't mean to imply that I'm against gift giving or Christmas decorations or Christmas celebrations. Uh, Not at all. In fact, I love the Christmas season. But one of the reasons that I love it so much is because it's a time of year when the whole world starts singing about our Savior, whether or not they're religious people, right? The whole world sings, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. You hear it in department stores and in the mall and what have you, playing over the loudspeakers. And that's one of the things I love about the Christmas season. But, you know, Satan wants to distract from that glorious truth and get us to focus only on material possessions. So it'll be my goal today to help us to understand uh, with, hopefully, razor-sharp clarity what the real reason for the season is all about and why. So with that in mind, let's look again at our master text that we just read in the book of Isaiah. Now, these prophecies that we read a moment ago... Uh, from Isaiah, of course, were speaking about the coming Messiah. They were prophecies about what would happen in the future with the coming Messiah. And it's speaking of a, a Savior who would redeem mankind from the sins, uh, from our sins, and reconcile us back to God. So I want to give you some observations about those texts that we just read. So first of all, the book of Isaiah was written 740 B.C., That's 740 years before the birth of Christ. And um, one of the things that I think we need to consider about that text in Isaiah 714, remember it says that the Messiah would be called Emmanuel. You remember that? That term Emmanuel means God with us. So you see, Jesus, when he walked the earth, was a manifestation of God in the flesh. And on that note, in Isaiah 9, 6, it says the Messiah is mighty God. So here's one reference to the Trinity, that God exists both as Father and Son, but also, of course, Holy Spirit. So that's a reference to the Trinity right there. But on, but on an unrelated note, I want you to notice that these prophecies are presented and written in the present tense. It didn't say someday in the future this is going to happen. It's written in the present tense. Let me clarify what I mean. The book of Romans tells us that God calls things that are not as though they were. In other words, God calls things that haven't happened yet as if they already happened. That's what that means. So in the mind of God, these things were established long before they happened, folks. So he announced them hundreds of years before they actually took place. So let me give you some other examples of some prophecies about the Messiah that were given hundreds of years before his birth and played out exactly 
as they were prophesied, thus validating the divinity of the Holy Scriptures. Now, by the way, before I jump into that, I just want to say that uh, for those of you that have been serving the Lord for a while, I'm looking around the room. And I don't see anybody that I don't think it hasn't already given their lives to the Lord. And some of this may be new information for you. Some of it may not be. But uh, use this as your own evangelistic endeavors, especially if you talk to people who are real skeptics about Jesus and about the divinity of Scripture. Some of what I'm going to be presenting today can validate the divinity of the Scripture because one of the, the characteristics of the Bible that's different than every other religious writing on earth is it deals with hundreds of prophecies, many of which have already come true. Now, other religious writings don't touch prophecy with a 10-foot pole because they know that if at some point those prophecies don't come true, then that invalidates them as a valid religious system. Okay? So let's look at some other prophecies uh, concerning the Messiah that came true in uncanny detail. So in the book of Micah, it says this, You, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth unto me who is to be ruler over Israel, whose existence has been from old, from everlasting. Now, this prophesies that the birthplace of the Messiah would be a little town called Bethlehem. In fact, we have a Christmas song by that name, right? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? So that's where the, the Messiah was born. And 710 years after this prophecy in Micah 5.2, Jesus was born in that exact location. And you can see that reference there in Matthew uh, chapter 2, verse 1. But I want to turn our attention to the last line of that prophecy in the book of Micah, where it says that the ruler over Israel, speaking of the Messiah, existed from everlasting. Now, here it's saying that the Messiah already existed from eternity past, signifying his deity. So clearly the scriptures describe Jesus as being eternal, not a creation of God, but part of God that, that existed from eternity past, God in flesh, which leads me to another passage along those lines. You're familiar with this one, I think, John chapter 1. I'm going to skip around on this, verses 1, 10, and 14. Uh, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He came into the world He created, but the world did not recognize Him. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is the Word? Jesus. Before Jesus became a man, I should say before the Word became a man, He was referred to as the Word. When He was born as a little baby in the manger, His name became Jesus at that point, also referred to as Emmanuel, God with us. Now, in speaking about prophecies, I also want to give you a few other prophecies that were... Um, spoken of in the Old Testament concerning the Messiah that came true in uncanny detail. How about Zechariah 9.9, written in 487 B.C., which says uh, that Jesus would enter Jerusalem on a donkey colt. That's referred to as the triumphal entry. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem by Jesus on a donkey colt. 
Also, it uh, talks about Jesus' betrayal for 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah 11.12, also 487 B.C. And in Isaiah 53.8, written 712 B.C., the arrest and trial of the Messiah was also prophesied. And I want to give you one more here. This is out of the book of Psalm, uh, chapter 22, written 1000 B.C., Now, I want you to see the uncanny detail in which this describes the execution and crucifixion of the Messiah, Jesus. Look at what it says. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of wicked men have encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves and cast lots upon my clothing. And folks, I want to let you know that all of these things happened at the foot of the cross. 1,000 years before it actually happened, it was prophesied. And Jesus' hands and feet were pierced. He could count all of his bones because of how the cat of nine tails whipping would often peel away so much flesh that you could see the rib cage. This happened. Uh, The soldiers did divide his garments among them and gamble or cast lots for his clothes. Isn't that uncanny that that was prophesied a thousand years before it actually happened? Well, folks, we've just examined a handful of prophecies concerning the Messiah. But did you know that there are over 300 prophecies concerning the life of the Messiah in the Old Testament? 300. Now, Several years ago, and I've talked about this many times when we've talked about this subject, and as a matter of fact, for a lot of you who've been around for a while, this is a very similar teaching to the one that I do usually this time of the year with a few little nuances and changes, but some of you haven't heard this information at all. Um, So uh, I think this is of of interest here. So several years ago, the science and mathematics department at Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California, were studying the laws of probability. And they chose as their research project the Old Testament prophecies concerning the life of the Messiah. And they determined, it was their goal to determine mathematically the chances of someone coming along in history who could fulfill just six of those 300 prophecies concerning the life of the Messiah. Now, please note that most of those prophecies were things that a person could never have arranged himself such as the birthplace of the Messiah being in Bethlehem, the fact that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, which is where Jesus eventually grew up. He was born in Bethlehem, grew up in in Nazareth. Um, The fact that the Messiah would come from the family line of David, which Jesus did, and that he would later be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that exact amount, not 29 pieces, not 31, but 30 pieces of silver. That was prophesied hundreds of years before it actually happened. And it happened just like that. The fact that soldiers would gamble for his clothes and the fact that he would be executed with nails in his hands and his feet. It happened just like that. So the chances of those things happening just like that is astronomically small. So the students and professors at Westmont, uh, in that research project that they did, they calculated the mathematical probability of someone coming along in history who could just, by chance, fulfill just six of those prophecies 
and concluded that the number was one chance in 10 to the 17th power. Now, folks, that's a, seven, that's a number with 17 zeros behind it. There's not even an, a name for a number that big. Now, to kind of give you a visual of how mathematically improbable that that actually is, of that actually happening just like that, you would have a better chance of getting struck by lightning twice in the middle of a snowstorm while sitting inside your house. Seriously, you'd have a much better chance of that happening than someone coming along in history who could fulfill just those six prophecies concerning the Messiah just by chance. Okay, the, the, the chances of that happening astronomically infinitely small. But the students and professors didn't stop with six prophecies. <clears throat> they went on to analyze 48 of the prophecies concerning the Messiah and determined that someone coming along in history who could fulfill just 48 of the 300, mind you, was one chance in 10 to the 157th power. But folks, the Messiah had to fulfill not just six prophecies and not just 48 prophecies. The Messiah had to fulfill all 300 prophecies. If even one of those prophecies of the 300 did not occur, then it would have invalidated Jesus as the true Messiah. And history records that Jesus Christ fulfilled all 300 of those prophecies down to the smallest detail. Praise God. Joy to the world, the Lord has indeed come. But why did he have to come? And why did he have to die? Well, you're looking there on the screen at an image from the movie poster, War of the Worlds, which is about, a, about an alien invasion of Earth. And I think that image accurately depicts what happened when mankind rebelled against God. See, earth and mankind were then subjected to an alien invasion of sorts, if you want to think about it that way. When mankind rebelled against God and, and obeyed Satan instead, all the demonic forces of hell were unleashed upon the earth. And God saw that we were under the rule of a cruel taskmaster. Our backs were bent with the weight of our sins. Um, when we were tethered, if you want to think about it that way, we were tethered to our slave master with a heavy iron chain that we could not escape. And folks, we can glance around right now for just a brief moment and recognize that we are all still very broken in some respects. And we live in a very broken world. And that's because the scriptures say in 1 John 5, 19, the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Boy, I wish I had time to go back into uh, what happened when uh, mankind was delegated authority on the earth by God in the Garden of Eden. And then they turned that authority over to Satan. And Satan has been in control of the earth ever since, according to the scriptures, 1 John 5.19. See, our sins seared our consciences and separated us from God. 
But God never stopped loving us. And because of that love, he put a plan in motion to rescue us from our slave master and bring us back to himself. And that's spoken of briefly in 1 John 3.8. When people keep on sinning, it says, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. That was his whole goal, to destroy the works of the devil. So why did Jesus come then? Well, the book of Romans tells us, in Romans 3.10 it says, There is no one righteous, not even one. After the fall, there was not a single person on earth that was perfectly righteous and without sin, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us smashed God's law into a thousand pieces. And then it goes on to say in Romans that the wages or the results of sin is death. Someone had to pay the penalty. The results of sin is death. And Romans 6.23, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I want to keep reading in the book of Romans because that's not the end of it. In Romans 3, verses 24 and 25, it says, Yet God, with undeserved kindness, declares that we are righteous. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sins. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Hallelujah. But listen, why would God do that? Why would the maker of the universe come down here as a frail, stinky man and take upon himself the punishment for our sins? Why would he do that? Well, ladies and gentlemen, the motive is just pure love. 1 John 4.16 says God is love. That's his nature. It's not that God has love. His very nature, his nature, his very persona is that of pure love. So that was the motive. Yes, God is all-powerful. Yes, God is holy. Yes, God is all-knowing. But at the essence of who God is, he is love. He's compassion. He's mercy. But he is also perfectly just, you see. And he will not let sin go unpunished. Someone still had to pay the penalty. So Jesus stepped in to take that punishment upon himself for your sins and mine. He became your scapegoat. He took the blame. You did the crime. Jesus did the time, if you want to look at it that way. So in doing so, that sacrifice satisfied both God's perfect justice and also his tender love toward his children. And I want to give you an example of the mystery of that kind of love. In the legendary story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, King Arthur had a beautiful wife that he loved very much named Guinevere. Guinevere, however, was not faithful to her husband and king, and she fell for one of his knights, Sir Lancelot. Well, in the story, she and Sir Lancelot have an affair, which is later discovered, and the law of the, of the land demanded Guinevere's execution. 
And of course, King Arthur's advisors reminded him of that grim reality. But the king truly loved his wife and didn't want to see her come to harm. And he, he loved her and wanted to take her back in and forgive her, even though she had betrayed him. He was a good man and wanted to forgive her. But the law was not on his side in this very personal matter. So he was in a terrible conundrum. Okay, What in the world would he do? Would he defy the law for the sake of his love for his wife and, and thus risk law and order in that society unraveling? He had worked so hard to create a society that was perfectly just, where there was law and order. But if he let his wife go free when this law was in place, law and order could completely unravel in that society. So would he choose that? Or would he uphold the law and thus lose his wife forever? Hmm. What a terrible dilemma he was in. But that's exactly the situation that God was in with mankind. See, mankind was the apple of God's eye, the love of his heart. But mankind betrayed God and obeyed the voice of his enemy, Satan, instead. So God was faced with a decision to either uphold perfect justice and deliver mankind over to Satan forever, or else forget about justice for the sake of his love and spare mankind. What a terrible dilemma. Would he serve justice? Would he, would he choose justice? Or would he choose love and mercy? What would he do? See, remember, God is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly loving and merciful. So which would he choose? Would he choose justice or would he choose mercy? Well, the wonderful and glorious story of redemption is that he chose both. He chose both. See, that's the gospel. That's the good news. God set a plan in motion to satisfy both his love and his justice. God's love for mankind was so overwhelmingly great that he sent his son Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the manifestation of God in flesh to take the punishment that was meant for mankind's sin so that Justice would be satisfied once and for all. And in doing so, mankind would then be set free from the everlasting punishment for our sins. Isn't that amazing? The only requirement is that we respond to that gesture of love by placing our faith in our scapegoat, Jesus, repent of our sins, and turn to him in response of love and thankfulness by living our lives for him all of our days. That's it. It's a free offer. And it's open to anyone who will respond to that. Now, I want you to know that God the Father was the first to sow and reap. He was the very first to sow and reap. I'm going to show you what I mean. Um, the line on the screen there that you see, For God so loved the world that he gave. Of course, that's the first line of John 3.16. But I want to pause right there and explain what I mean by God the Father was the first to sow and reap. You see, the, the universal law of sowing and reaping applies to everything in life, folks. 
Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. And God put that plan in motion, put that truth, built it into the fabric of the universe, and he was the first to sow and reap. God sowed his only begotten son so that he may reap back many more sons and daughters. Praise God. So let's read the rest of that passage in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Hallelujah. Now, that's a wonderful and glorious truth, but what's our response to that? What should our response be to that? Because a lot of people, I think, hear a Christmas message, especially the, the Christers, people that come to church on Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and that's about the only time they darken the door of a church. I think a lot of people uh, hear that part of the message and say, oh, great. Well, I could go off and continue living my life the way I've always lived it, and I'll be okay. Um, not so fast. Not so fast. Let's refer to very quickly Romans 12.1, referring to our proper response to the glorious truths we've just heard. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, in considering what he's done for us, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. What's that mean? It means that's the least we can do. Since Jesus did so much for us, since God's plan of salvation is so magnificently glorious, that's the least we can do, is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Now, what's that mean? That you need to lay yourself down on a cross and be sacrificed? No. On a side note, remember when um, the... Um, Passion of the Christ came out. I heard of people doing really weird things after that movie came out. I heard about this person who just felt like that they needed to experience something similar to what Jesus uh, experienced on the cross. And this person, not being led by the Holy Spirit, clearly, built a cross, laid down on it, nailed the first hand into the cross... And then realized at that moment that there wasn't another hand available to nail the other one into the cross. So, um, anyway, that's not what this passage is referring to. It means that you abandon your own agenda. You abandon your own self-serving life. And you lay down your own desires, your own self-serving agenda to serve Christ. And to obey Him. So our only Response should be that since God gave extravagantly, so extravagantly to us, that we also give. Giving of ourselves to God fully by serving Him and obeying Him. And giving ourselves to other people on behalf of the Lord. Giving ourselves to other people by serving them on Christ's behalf. Like some of us did in serving the, um, the victims of the Kentucky disaster some of us financially and with material goods and some going down there and doing the actual legwork and being boots on the ground. That's what it's talking about. Things like that. 
praise God. You know, folks, the response should be an obvious one. Because Jesus gave everything, we likewise should be willing to give him everything in response. Amen. Luke 9, verses 23 through 25 says this, Then he, Jesus, said to them all, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross daily. Not not literally, but figuratively. We take up our cross daily and follow him. That means laying down your life, your agendas, your desires, all your self-serving ways and serving Christ with your life. But he goes on. For whoever desires to save his life, in other words, if you just want to hold on to all your self-serving ways, that's what that means. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and again, that's figuratively, you lose all of your self-serving ways, okay? But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. But what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, but then forfeits his soul? Right? So, you know, folks, the Bible teaches us that it's not enough to just say you believe everything that you've heard today. The Bible teaches us that if you truly believe, then that belief should manifest itself in the way that you and I live our lives. I'm going to say that again. I've got to drill that in your head. It's not enough just to say you believe something. Because if that belief is true, genuine belief, that belief should manifest itself in some sort of change in the way that you view the world, your worldview. It should also change the way that you behave very progressively. There should be some things that change right away. The minute you give your life to the Lord, certain things should change right away. But then the Lord will take you on a process of sanctification for the rest of your life beyond that point. If you've made some pseudo-commitment just because you walked an aisle or said a prayer or went through some ritual or ceremony, but it didn't make a change in the way you live your life, you didn't get saved. I'm going to say that again. If you went through some ritual just to appease your conscience, you walked the aisle, you said a sinner's prayer, maybe you got baptized, but it did not change anything about the way you think, speak, and behave, and the way you view the world, you didn't get saved. You had an emotional experience, or you went through some ceremony to appease your conscience, and that will not be enough to save you in the end. If it's true, genuine faith, it must manifest itself in some sort of life change in your life. Praise God. Did I tell you about the one guy that I ran around with for many, many years? He and I partied together and did crazy things together. And, and then he attended the church that I started attending and, and uh, um, early in my walk with the Lord. And... Um, this guy was wild as a wood tick. I mean, he, I mean, he, was, he, he drank like a fish. I mean, crazy. And uh, anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> and I remember he came to our church one day. And he had some emotional experience where he walked the aisle in response to our pastor's um, invitation. He literally knelt down on his knees and held his hands up to the air. And I'm like, 
this guy got saved. Um, and it looked so genuine. But then he went off and he just continued living life the way. I mean, he didn't make any change at all. He didn't get saved. He responded to an emotional experience. And he had no heart change. He didn't get saved. Okay? And I'm not saying that the, that the actions save you. That's not what, not what I'm saying. That, that true faith in, in, in God's grace saves you. That's what saves you. has nothing to do with your behavior, just everything to do with faith. But if you have true faith, it's going to manifest itself in a change in your lifestyle. Amen? See, the, the book of James says that if we say we believe, but that belief doesn't produce some fruits of righteousness, then it's a dead faith that cannot save you in the end. So if you've held back from fully embracing Jesus as the supreme authority or the Lord of your life, don't hold back anymore. I mean, he's beckoning to you right now. If there's anybody in the room right now that have not made that true commitment, that has not manifested some sort of life change in you, if there's anybody in the room like that, he's beckoning to you even right now. Why won't you give me all of you? The Lord would be saying. I have nothing but good things in store for you. I'm beckoning to you right now. Give me all of you. Why won't you do that? I love you, the Lord says. Yet many people, so many people continue to stiff arm God because they want to do it their way. And they're going to dis discover someday the horrible results of trying to do life independent of God. It's not going to end well. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 7 that many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these religious things in your name? But he's going to say, away from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Folks, this is a message that has to be preached. Because if you truly experience the grace of God, it should be manifesting itself in a progressive process of godliness being worked into your life. Praise God. So a life independent of God is not going to work. It's not going to save you in the end. You'll have to come through Jesus or all's going to be lost. And that's a message, by the way, the world just does not want to hear. I like what Ray Comfort said along these lines. He said, people love the baby in the manger, but they hate the grown-up who said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, the message of Christmas isn't just about a sweet little baby in a manger, folks. But it's about the God-man, Emmanuel, Jesus Christ, literally splitting time in two when he came into the world. And his mission, again, wasn't that little manger. His mission was the cross. His mission was the cross. He made a way of escape from the wrath of God against sin. Yes, there is wrath to come, but Jesus provided a way to escape that wrath to come. And he is the only way to the Father, by the way. He said it himself. Look it up. He didn't claim to be a way to the Father. He claimed to be the only way to the Father. Unless you come through Jesus, 
you're not going to make it. Again, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus said. And people hate that message for the most part. Most of the world hates that message. They want to believe that you can believe anything you want and still be okay. They want to believe that you can act like anything you want. Just as long as you say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus and still be okay. But that's not what Jesus said. And that's why the world hates Jesus and hates the Bible for the most part. But folks, the message is true. Jesus has made a way for you and me. Jesus is the Father's ark, so to speak, if you want to look at it from a Noah and the the ark perspective. I mean, there's parallels there, isn't there? And the plan of salvation is so simple. It's just believe in Jesus Receive him as your Lord, repent, which means turn away from your life of sin, and instantly you become a child of God. That is the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus came to earth to accomplish. And yes, while I think it's very appropriate and a very joyous time to celebrate the coming of the Savior in the form of a little baby, that wasn't the end of it. That was only the beginning. 33 years later, the consummation of everything that Jesus came to do was brought to a climax on the cross. And then again through his resurrection, when he took upon himself the punishment for your sins and mine. And ladies and gentlemen, that is the message that you and I are still here to proclaim. That's the message that we bear And that's why I preach this message or a similar version of it every Christmas and every Easter when the Christers come. (laughs) We've got a lot of our usuals out today because of uh, several illnesses and people traveling. But uh, a lot of times the the Christers come on on Christmas and, and, uh, and I don't like to call it Easter, I like to call it Resurrection Sunday. And um, this is the message that we bear. Would you stand with me for a moment? You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Andy Robbins and Blessed Life Fellowship. For more teaching and ministry resources, go to the church website at www.blessedlifefellowship.org. Thanks for listening, and may God's grace and favor shine on you.